Okay, we're going to talk about the impact of all this in, on education. Yeah. So it's, we'll, it's, big, it's one of the it's a third of our score. Yeah, so education is a big component, and long term, it's probably going to be the most significant effect of all of this. Yeah, longer term, yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of these kids, you know, I mean, my kids, fine, you know, they'll be fine. I won't, you know, but there are a lot of kids that are never going to overcome the deficits from that. Without the structure of school, a lot of these kids <laughs> yeah, no, just no. weren't learning anything. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, parents might have been trying, but you know, how many? No, no, of, parents can't. You know, what are they going to do? You know, I mean, we we have all so many studies now where you know, we're looking at the educational deficits from the periods where schools were quote unquote remote instruction. And the deficit is the same as the amount of time they were remote. You were remote six months, you're six months behind. You were yeah. remote a year, you're a year behind. So yeah. they were learning nothing, yeah. most of these kids, on average. If the deficit is equal to the amount of time you were remote. Yeah. You did a lot of really interesting statistical stuff, but we've got to turn this into plain, yeah. plain English, and you know, you know how to do that. Um, and so I really want you to sort of make it clear what's at stake. Bill Walton Show, April 21st. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. We're more than two years into the COVID-19 pandemic. So by now, we should know enough to assess what we've learned about the measures our governments took to mitigate the virus. What worked, what didn't work. Fortunately, we now have a comprehensive comparative study published as a working paper by the National Bureau of Economic Research. It's authored by University, University of Chicago economist Casey Mulligan and Steve Moore and Phil Kirpin of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. They compared COVID outcomes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia based on three variables, the economy, education, and mortality. Their conclusion? The severe lockdown states suffered much more in overall social well-being in return for not much benefits to health. We can't let this conclusion go. We must absorb what we've learned from what worked and what didn't work. We can't mindlessly respond to the next pandemic, and we all know there will be one, uh, with failed policies. To dig into this, Phil, Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment and author, one of the authors of the study, and a deep subject matter expert on COVID policies, is here today to talk. Phil, great to see you again. Great to be with you, Bill. We came into this about a year ago when we were in midstream, and I think you'd reached a lot of conclusions now, but this is the first chance I think you've really had to, to rigorously assemble all the data. Yeah, I, well, I, I had earlier versions of this paper, but what would happen is we'd say, okay, this is, now we've got, all the states have been through it, we can do the retrospective assessment, and then another wave would come. Yeah. And so it's, okay, we'll hold off and wait until we have more data, and so it got pushed uh, a number of times. But I think that um, even if there are future waves, we now have enough with two years of data. I think we've, we've seen enough to draw some pretty firm conclusions about the relative performance of the states. And uh, as you said, um, the lockdown states really, really harmed themselves severely. Uh, they caused severe damage uh, economically and educationally in particular. And if you look at 
you know, what did they gain for it? Uh, did they get better mortality outcomes? There's really only one state, I think, that you can look at and say, you know, the severe lockdown withdrawal from economic activity correlated with much better COVID outcomes, and that's Hawaii. But Hawaii is so dissimilar from the rest of the country in so many ways, being an island, maybe you can control uh, a virus through non-pharmaceutical interventions in an island, but it doesn't look like you can do it anywhere else. And by the way, even in Hawaii, the, the price they paid for that was staggering. Even today, as we speak, they've only recovered 90% of their pre-pandemic employment in Hawaii. 90%, they're 10% down, which is just, you know, they, no place else in the country is worse than 95%. And a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the red states are well above 100. So it, Hawaii, I would say the one place lockdowns maybe arguably worked was Hawaii, but even there they weren't justified. And you look at uh, the rest of the country in the continental U.S., and there's no relationship at all uh, between the, the withdrawal from economic activity and the health outcomes. So we have three variables, health outcomes, economic performance, and education. And how did you settle on those three? Well, those, I think, are kind of the three most significant areas uh, kind of in, in terms of impact and, uh, and values and, and life. I mean, I think the... Um, you know, I'm not sure really what else you could put in. I mean, I think okay. if you think about the the kind of what, well, what, what broadly what, are the impacts. What, well, how did you measure the how did you measure health outcomes? Well, we used we used two subcomponents of that. Uh, one is the the CDC COVID death count, uh, the one that you see in all the tickers, the million people, that one. Uh, but we adjusted it uh, in two ways. First, we standardized the age distribution for each state to be the same age distribution as the United States overall, because otherwise, uh, you're essentially measuring the number of old people in the state because we have such a severe, I mean, there was a thousand times difference. So Florida has more old people. So right. how, how did you adjust that? Well, what we did is we took the, uh, we took the death rate. So yeah. the, the number of deaths per hundred thousand population in a number of different age buckets. So I think we did, you know, zero to 39 or 35 was the younger one. And then we did, you know, 10 year buckets yeah. going up. And then we took that rate for the observed deaths in each state and we multiplied it by the standard US population. So it's the rates that occurred in each age bucket standardized to a US population. Uh, and, and that's kind of the methodology for age adjustment that the government uses. That's did you also adjust for, for coexisting or pre-existing conditions we, we like, did. like diabetes? We did. And, we and, did. And so we took the age standardized deaths. Right. And then we applied a further adjustment for the two health conditions that had by far the largest correlation with bad outcomes with COVID. And those were obesity and diabetes. So we took the obesity and diabetes rates of the states and we, we did a regression to adjust for those. And so the, that half of the mortality measure is essentially a health and age standardized COVID death rate. And then the other measure we use for mortality is all-cause mortality. And we took the excess all-cause all mortality, again, using a, an age standardized methodology, but we did it as a percentage, which is to say, you know, we took the baseline the average number of age standardized all-cause deaths, deaths from any cause in a state over the last few years, and then we looked at the percentage increase that was observed during, during COVID. And the reason we did the percentage as opposed to the number is that should capture all of the differences in underlying health because it's the run rate that's been going on in that state prior to COVID, and then we looked at the percent change. And so 
the both of these measures should give us a pretty good sense, one, of how hard COVID hit in terms of deaths with appropriate adjustments, and the other just overall what was going on in terms of deaths. And that second one uh, also should capture any lockdown effects on mortality. And, you know, any, so it, it gives us a broader measure of sort of, you know, what was policy doing uh, on deaths overall, not just on COVID. And then we, we equally weighted those two, and that's the mortality score that we used. Now, you got, you got pushback from Media Matters, of course, which attacked you because you're conservative or you're not, uh, not aligned with them politically. So has anybody done any real analytical pushback here? I mean, are people pretty much accepting this methodology? Well, you know, I, I think the um, the interesting thing is we we've gotten we've gotten some pushback uh, on some of the things we didn't adjust for. So, for instance, people say, "Why didn't you adjust for population density?" And well, we didn't adjust for population density because it didn't matter very much. Doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. it, it looked like it mattered early on because the cities got hit first. Sure. Uh, but over the two years, it ended up. It really was a pandemic. It ended up. It went through everywhere. The rural areas that thought they were going to be spared were not spared. And in fact, the low density, if you look at the, the health outcome measure, the low density states didn't do that great on that. Uh, you know, some of these uh, states that did well on our overall measure, like, you know, you look at South, like South Dakota and Montana are at the top of our combined measure, but they didn't do so great on the health component. They did much better on the other components. So we've had that criticism. You know, uh, some people have questioned why we did any adjustments at all. And say, why, you know, if a state has lots of old people, they should have found a way to protect them. You shouldn't age adjust. You shouldn't health adjust. Uh, But I think that, you know, if we did that, we wouldn't be presenting a measure of pandemic performance. We'd be presenting a measure of, you know, population health as it existed prior to this. So I I don't think that would be very useful. So the... uh the the so we've got now did you dig into all the 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 reported covid death numbers i mean there a lot there's a lot of skepticism that yeah. those numbers are not entirely accurate there are a lot of things attributed to covid that we uh, just were uh, really due to something else we just took the cdc numbers as they are for okay, this so, so we didn't, didn't we didn't look into that i mean i i think there's no question that there's substantial overreporting in some places at some times and there was probably also Underreporting in other places at other times, especially early on when there was limited testing. So it's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to say. You know, until you can do a comprehensive death certificate or chart review on all of it, which I'm not sure we'll ever get. It is hard to answer that question. I will say though that the using all-cause deaths as one of the measures sort of addresses that problem uh, indirectly because it's a you know regardless of cause, this is the total number of deaths, and so. Using, I, th- I think by using, you know, half of our metric using the all-cause numbers, uh, it sort of gets to any questions about classification problems. Now, you took all three factors, the health, the education, and the, and the economy, but did you also do separate measures for each one, how the states ranked in terms of death outcomes? Or, yes. Or how do, what, what, the, what does that look like, the top five, the bottom five? Uh, well, I actually don't have a rank that way in front of me. Okay. Uh, but but I think you might you might have I have that. I happen to have you a complete have study here. You have a complete study, so <laughs> I can I can answer it. Why don't I, I can give answer you... that for you pretty easily. So if you look in, if if people want to look in the study, we've got you know. Well, in let's the sections, title the study, and it, you in can... the sections that uh, we have on each one of these. So we, I think we have the economic section first, then we have the education section. If you go to the mortality section, we presented a number of different ways so that people can see sort of the overall. So you know the. We've got it before and after the adjustments. 
So the way we've done it, after the adjustments, the numbers that we used, we've got Hawaii at the very top, which is probably not surprising, considering, as I said, they became a total fortress and largely did keep COVID out, although at enormous cost. Uh, then we've got Vermont, Maine, Oregon, New Hampshire, Washington. Uh, and so what you kind of notice is there were some regions, the Pacific Northwest and New England, that just for, for whatever reason were not hit as hard as the rest of the country. Hmm. And they had better outcomes. And that sort of pattern tends to happen. You know, you look throughout the list, you get sort of regional clustering effects. And, and one of the interesting things, a lot of people say, you know, you've got all the way on the bottom, you've got, you know, Nevada, New York, New Jersey, D.C., Arizona, uh, New Mexico's near the bottom too. And you kind of say, well, maybe it was bad policy response or maybe it was just timing. I mean, the places that were hit very, very early, New York, New Jersey, D.C., they have the worst outcomes on this. Maybe they were just completely caught off guard or, you know, maybe they were caught off guard and then did really dumb things like put people on ventilators that killed them. And sending, and sending, sending, old, sending old people back into nursing homes where, Are, they, where they promptly almost died. Almost definitely a factor. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we, uh, we cite a study in here, a pretty good study uh, by, by Carl Hennigan from Collateral Global that they, they looked at this question of do nursing home policies matter for COVID outcomes? And they said yes. And they had a number of factors that they found. And so that's a pretty consistent pattern globally. The places that really got nursing homes wrong had a big jump versus what you otherwise might have seen regionally or, or based on these wave patterns. Um, but, you know, if you look... And, and, and Cuomo's New York ended up 49th. New York, uh, 50th on deaths, and I think 49th <laughs> okay. overall. I think they, right. we've, we've got Nevada slightly worse, but New York is right there at the bottom. So they had a very, very bad COVID outcomes. And of course, uh, they also had bad economic and education outcomes. So they, they, prefer, well, but, let's, let's dig into the other two yeah. and then we can circle sure. back around it. So we, got, how do you, how do you do the economic metrics? The economic metrics, again, it's a, it's a two component. This is the Bill Walton show. I'm here with Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. And we're digging into his very revealing study about what worked and what didn't work during the lockdowns and the result on educational attainment and, and health and, and, the, and the economy. Phil? Uh, we, it, the, uh, the economy score also has two components. Uh, we use GDP by state from the Bureau of Economic Analysis and we used employment. Uh, and, and the way that we did employment is we did, on a monthly basis, uh, we did the uh, change in employment versus the pre-pandemic period. And then we, we sort of added all of those up. Uh, and again, we, we did adjustments on, on this as well to adjust for kind of the uncontrollable factors uh, as we saw them. And so things like travel and tourism and oil and gas that were just going to be nuked no matter what because of the global effects, we, uh, we essentially regress them out. And so we have a industry, we, we have the, the economic components are adjusted as if every state had you know, an average amount of their GDP and employment in those sort of highly pandemic sensitive sectors. And so you, know, you look at a state I've, like I've Nevada. I've seen your equation, so we're going to have to take your word for it okay. that you did it right. <laughs> I, well, th I know I, you I, did. I, I know we did it right because I asked Casey to do it. And so Casey Mulligan from <laughs> yeah, the University you, of Chicago you see, did yeah. the regression. And yeah. so we're, we're confident on that. So the, the what about the, uh, uh, let's talk about the educational piece we talked about before we started the show. What uh, What's happened with kids? Well, what we use for that is we, we obtained data from a company called Burbio 
that very closely tracked uh, schools uh, across the country. And what we used was the, we used the percentage of in-person learning for the 2020-2021 school year, so that we would have a complete school year with a complete data set. And uh, the way they did this is if they were full-time, it was 100% weighted. If they were on a part-time or hybrid schedule, it was like 50% weighted. And then they produced a score for the entire school year, what percentage of uh, you know, the, the instruction was in person in each state. And that's the score that we used. And so it's a, you know, arguably it's a little bit of an input as opposed to an outcome because we don't have academic achievement numbers uh, yet. But I, I'm extremely confident that the effect on achievement is going to mirror very, very closely the amount of in-person instruction that took, that took place because we've now got a number of studies that show that remote instruction was essentially equivalent to, to no school at all. Uh, we've got several studies now that show if you were remote for six months, you're six months behind. If you were remote for a year, you're a year behind. There's a one-to-one -one there which suggests that it was very, very ineffective. And so uh, using the percentage of in-person instruction as we do in the study, I think is going to give a, a pretty good measure of uh, what we're going to see in terms of outcomes as well. So you, you, you put this together and you put it in your equation machine. And what, what do you come out with in terms of the rankings for the states? And then I want to talk about what policy conclusions we need well, to draw. The, the, way, the way we put it together is we used, the, we used what are called Z-scores, which is the, uh, essentially the, the, the number of standard deviations away from the mean that each state was in each one of these categories. And then we summed them. And so it shows you, you know, it sort of gives you an equal weighted score, how much better or worse than average each state was. And then by, we, then we transformed it to a zero to 100 and gave them letter grades. So it would be something people are more familiar with and can kind of wrap their arms around and understand. And uh, what we found at the top, the states that got A pluses were Utah, Nebraska, and Vermont. The A's were Montana, South Dakota, Florida, New Hampshire, Maine, and Arkansas. And then on the other end, uh, the states that did really, really badly. And, and by the way, to be near the top, you needed to do really well in, in at least two of three mm -hmm. of the categories. And to do really badly, you had to be pretty bad in all three uh, to reach kind of the bottom. These, these, these states at the bottom had very low scores. They were sort of across the board, poor outcomes. And the Fs were Illinois, California, New Mexico, New York, District of Columbia, and New Jersey. So uh, no big surprises there, I don't think. Um, now, how did you measure the degree of lockdown? I mean, there's, there, there are vaccine mandates, there are masks, there are distancing, there's uh, shutting businesses. How did you measure the degree of severity that each state took to... Uh, to, well, uh, we, didn't, to we, didn't, about. we didn't try to quantify that. Uh, okay. there, are, there are some measures out there of stringency metrics and things like that. We looked at them and we, we didn't think they were accurate. We didn't like them. And so we just did the performance metrics that we talked about. Uh, one of the things we did, though, is um, we did a scatter plot comparing the economic score to the uh, mortality score. Because if the lockdown measures were effective, you would think the states that withdrew from economic activity would have a benefit. You would think that there'd be a relationship. And uh, outside of Hawaii, there was, there was no relationship. So withdrawal from economic activity uh, did not correlate with better health outcomes. And I think that's kind of the, that, that's I think the main finding 
So the, com- the, the states that shut down businesses arbitrarily, the famous ones being shutting down one department at Home Depot and not another. <laughs> I think in Michigan they banned In Michigan, yeah. They yeah. were partitioning the stores. Didn't matter. It didn't matter. It didn't. It didn't have. It any, just hurt. It just. Any, it, just, it, it, just, just hurt, it just hurt the harms. small business yeah. people. It just created economic harms. There was no, there was no health payoff to it at all. And you know, we've got a number of studies now, both internationally and domestically, that kind of find the same thing: that uh, lockdowns may have a timing effect. They may delay some of that, but they really don't have a, but, an effect. But what I want to dig into a bit, maybe you haven't studied it, but I think I'd like to speculate, is if you're sitting there as a governor and you've got this range of things you can do from shutting down businesses to requiring social distancing to closing schools to requiring vaccines, requiring masks, you know, the whole, the whole smorgasbord of stuff, was there any one of those that proved to be effective, or did the study get not go into the individual? Yeah, you know, we we didn't really look at that in this study, but you know, I can tell you from having reviewed. And by the way, all, we don't have to stay in the four yeah, walls we, of this we can study. Go you, the study. You've been you've been I, you've I, been I, tracking I all this. Yeah, so let's I mean, not... I think the I think the um, <clears throat> you know, almost every time a new policy is announced, you yeah. got some short term benefit. So, it, which is interesting, it didn't really matter what the policy was that was announced. You come out and say, we now have a policy, everyone has to wash their hands all the time. You probably got the same short-term benefit if you said all these businesses have to close. And I think that what happens is the, you get sort of these event effects where the announcements causes, cause people to say, wait a second, I'm gonna be careful, I'm not gonna interact with people. And, and they, so that behavioral response has some benefit, but the actual substance of the policies, which are actually forcing and requiring people to do, don't seem to matter very much. So, um, I mean, have you done any work in there on the on the difference between germs born on surfaces versus airborne? I mean, one of the things I remember for the first yeah. year we were wiping everything. Yeah, that and, was completely. And it turns out that's that not was transmittable. Wrong. That was completely wrong. It was basically, it, it ended up being essentially zero surface transmission. What else did we get wrong from the very outset? Well, you know, I think that the uh, the initial belief was that. There was surface transmission, you know, fomite transmission from surfaces or from clothes or whatever. And uh, they, they also thought uh, that they thought most of the transmission was from droplets, uh, like, like, you know, spit. And it turns out that uh, it was almost all aerosol transmission, which meant that the distancing really didn't make much difference. If you're in a poorly ventilated room and aerosols can hang in the air for hours or even days, uh, you're going to get an exposure if you're 10 or 20 or 30 feet away. <laughs> Uh, whereas, you know, with the, when they thought it was droplets, the difference between one feet or three feet or six feet was really important. And so it ended up being about settings, uh, in setting where the aerosol might, it might be airborne that way. And, and, and of course, uh, early on, they also seemed to think that there was significant outdoor transmission and it, it turned out that, uh, that may be almost impossible to get a transmission in an outdoor that's, setting. That's the reason like they arrested that someone. surfer in Malibu yeah. who was uh, wearing surfing without a mask. There was one, you know, there was there was <laughs> one like European soccer game very early on yeah. uh, that they said was a big super spreader event and it was outdoors. And this was the thing that they pointed to. And, you know, I, um, and of course, you know, they also took like buses, the whole town took buses to it. So it might've just been that, and, you know, I mean, there were other aspects to it, but I'll tell you, I watched some of the video of it. Cause I was like, well, there was one outdoor super spreader. I wonder how, so I watched the video. They were, they had like four goals and every, after every goal, like every single person was hugging and kissing. And I'm like, I don't think this is typical 
interactions that we see in other outdoor contexts. I think doesn't it was happen, very, it doesn't very, happen at the NFL. It game. was very, very atypical. <laughs> uh, and so I think that, you know, we could have had zero disruption to anything that goes on outdoors. And I don't think there would have been any more transmission for us. I think that was a big one. And, uh, but I really think, you know, the, the biggest mistake that we made was closing schools. And uh, I think we're going to have massive long-term consequences from that. And uh, even very, very early on, you know, you look back and say, well, how do we make this mistake? The very first study on school closures, which was published, I think, in Lancet, um, said we don't know much about the transmission dynamics of COVID, but if it's transmitted like flu, where children are a very important transmission vector, then prolonged school closures could reduce overall mortality by like 2%. This was their claim. And, you know, you go back and you look at this now and you say, well, it turned out it wasn't transmitted like flu at all. Children were a much less significant driver of transmission uh, with COVID than they uh, are with flu. But you kind of you think about you're going to deny kids a year of school to try to reduce mortality by two. Yeah, just it was it, you know, even 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 before we knew better, we should have known better than to have these prolonged school closures. And, you know, even early on, you know, I think a lot of Europe, they closed for f- four weeks, eight weeks, and then they were back. And uh, they didn't see major outbreaks or problems. And we were here in the U.S. And I remember, you know, Trump did this big event at the White House. I was actually invited to it. And uh, they had American Academy of Pediatrics, all these other experts. They said, we should have schools open. We're going to have normal. This was, I think, June or July 2020. And so we were going to, you know, we were on track to only lose, you know, a month or two at the end of that 2019-2020 school year. And it just became, there was just this insane political backlash after that event. I want to say 10 days after that event, American Academy of Pediatrics reversed their advocacy, literally in a joint statement with the teachers unions. They said, no, actually, schools should close. (laughs) Okay. And that to me was sort of the pivot point. Yeah. Uh, And, and it, you know, it actually got even worse. Uh, You you, you might've thought, okay, they're doing this. They're going to lock all these kids out of school, cause all this harm just to win an election or just because they hate President Trump and want to prove him wrong. Um, but then Biden came in and we had an almost literal repeat of that because remember January 2021, we thought we were going to get guidance from CDC finally saying all the schools should be open. And then what happened is they ended up putting out a document that kind of said the opposite. Mm-hmm. They kind of said, no, actually, we want them all closed. And everyone was trying to figure out how this happened or what was going on. And then we later found out from FOIA's that the teachers unions dictated that guidance to the CDC. <laughs> they told them to close the schools. And of course, at the time, they were trying to do a big shakedown to get another 100 or $150 billion in the, uh, in the CARES Act bill. And so, you know, obviously there was big money politics involved. But, you know, I think that, um, I think it's shameful uh, what we did to children. Uh, they were always, they were always at extremely low risk. In fact, children were at normal risk during the pandemic, which is to say the risk to children with this virus was no different from the other viruses they normally encounter. And so they were, they were not at elevated risk uh, and they were not major drivers of transmission. And yet uh, we upended their lives and really denied them normal life uh, for as much as two years. And, um, you know, there haven't been a lot no. of apologies. <laughs> I think no, a lot of them eventually admitted yeah, they were wrong, but there haven't been a lot of apologies. Uh, this is Bill Walton show. I'm here, Bill Walton show. I'm here with Phil Kirpin, and we're talking about the uh, catastrophic policies that uh, were wrought during the uh, pandemic, and and how it hurt kids the most. 
and it's, we're going to pay a big price for this long term because of the the lapses in education. But also, we're talking about the politics of this. And Phil, I mean, I'm you, you studied this more than I. It seems to me like this is the most politicized health issue or pandemic in history. I mean, this thing oh, is, was be. immediately grabbed as, uh, and people took sides politically, and that remains the case up until now. Well, you know, one of the problems we have now is that uh, you have an awful lot of people who think that if they, um, if they say, okay, normal life, normal schools, normal, that'll involve admitting they were wrong. And for some people, that's, you know, they can't possibly do that. Well, and not only admitting they were wrong, but I think they're criminally liable in many cases. I mean, if you think about the number of excess deaths, and we haven't talked about that yet, you have COVID deaths, and yet you're saying there are all these other measures that were taken that hurt people. And you had deferred treatment for cancer. You had people not getting dialysis. You had people that were doing drugs and alcohol and all that. And the number of people who, who suffered there's there, there's been no proportionality to this at all. Yeah, it, it's actually it's a little bit hard to get a handle on exactly how much uh, non-COVID excess death there was, but it's it's somewhere on the order of 100,000 deaths per year for the last two years. So we've got about 200,000 extra non-COVID deaths, and you know I, you have to attribute those to the policy response in large part, I think. And Jim and, Jim Agresti has also done a number of he calls it man, person years that, that that are lost. And his his view, and I think a lot of other people have come up with this, is it's not just the deaths that are occurring now, but it's the way lives have been shortened. Yeah, I think we're de I, it's a really good point, and I think that um, you know the number of life years lost for the non-COVID excess is definitely on average much higher than the COVID because you've got younger people that are dying, uh, particularly the drug and alcohol deaths have been uh, much younger than the COVID deaths and they're up substantially. Uh, the vehicle fatalities are up a lot, which is kind of counterintuitive. A lot of people thought early on, oh, well, everyone's staying home, so we're going to save all these lives on the road. Vehicle fatalities are up? They're up substantially, which is interesting because a lot fewer miles have been driven. But, you know, I think that what happens is when there's not traffic, people speed more. <laughs> and it turns out that the, the, the accidents they have are more likely to kill at high speed. And so the vehicle fatalities have been up uh, substantially. The other thing that's interesting is the if you look at the place of death data, a lot more people are dying at home than we normally see which makes you wonder, you know, how much are we having, you know, people not seeking medical treatment because they've essentially been misled to believe the hospitals are too busy for them. And, you know, they have, you know, a, an acute cardiac event, they have a stroke or a heart attack, and they, they, don't, they don't get treatment. And they die as a consequence of that. And so those, I think, are some of the reasons we've seen significant increase in, in short term, uh, you know, the, the excess deaths that have already happened on COVID. But then there's this other question, which, which you raised, which is, you know, what's the long-term impact of uh, discouraging so many people from engaging with the healthcare system? You know, how many cancers are going to be detected much later with a much worse prognosis as a consequence of people staying away from healthcare for a couple of years? And the other thing that really drives me nuts is, you know, I look at the hospital utilization numbers pretty closely, and we have not had a single month in which inpatient admissions or ER visits in this country were higher than 2019 since the pandemic started. Before the pandemic. Yeah. We've not reached normal levels in a single month since the pandemic started. Uh, that's how much utilization has collapsed. So even when we've had the big COVID waves, uh, other utilization has gone has down dropped. so much has dropped. that our overall utilization has still not reached 2019 levels in any month. 
And, you know, that's the healthcare crisis that they never really talk about. They don't. Well, that's, that's, yes. I'm sorry, I'm just jumping. Yeah. Well, right? I mean, I'm so, violently so agreeing. So we, we have all these stories, all these headlines about, oh my God, there are all these COVID people showing up at the ER. And yeah. you say, okay, but wait Oop. a second. If the total number of ER visits is still lower than it was in 2019 for this month, when you have all the, then what is that? Who's not showing up? Well, you know this already, but the, one of the iron laws of economics is the seen and the unseen. And, you know, Adam Smith called it the invisible hand, but we've got the things we see, which are the COVID numbers maybe, but what we're not seeing is everything else that's bad that's going on. And that's what's not getting reported. Even now, they've, you listen to the local news and somebody will come on, well, hospital admissions have risen. And then they just stop. Like there's no other news. And, you know, what's right. that mean? Well, I... You know, I, I, I like to um, I like I like to look at the hospital numbers in the I like to look at the hospital numbers, not the covid chart that you see on TV all the time. But I have a different chart that I like to use, which is the total number of staffed beds. And then as a subset of that, the ones that are occupied and then as a subset of that, the ones that are occupied with covid, because it puts into it puts into perspective what a small percentage, even in the even in the worst sort of covid waves what a small percentage of total capacity is actually used by COVID. And um, the other thing that's kind of interesting when you look at it that way is the top line, the number of staffed beds, has kind of gone down consistently throughout the pandemic, which is not what you would expect if you've got a stressed hospital system. You would think we'd be adding capacity, but we were actually losing capacity. Well, you talk about the... The, the, the huge cost in education, having it shut down, the kids, the, the education lost, and that'll linger for decades. But I'd also argue the, the economy, you can measure unemployment, you can measure GDP, but the, but the impact on the supply chain, part of the reason we're looking at inflation now, part of the reason we're looking at shortage of many, many things we used to take for granted as Americans is because of what we did in shutting down all the small businesses. And people don't understand the economy. You understand this. this is such a uh, such an interconnected, uh, interwoven uh, fabric that you take one piece out, and all of a sudden, nothing else quite works. And we injected that uh, that that toxicity into our economic system. I still don't think we've recovered. Well, it's very hard. You know, the economy is not a machine that has an on-off switch, and you can just shut it down for a while and then turn it back on, and everything's fine. We, I know Steve Moore, the co-author yeah. in this, would un, talks about this all the yeah. time. I mean, did you guys? What did you guys conclude from your study? Well, obviously, some states were hit much harder than others, and some, yeah. you know, the, the states that had relatively short, the states that had relatively short disruptions, were able to recover, you know, pretty quickly. And uh, we just have this massive, massive disparity. And as I mentioned, I think we've got. A dozen states now where employment is higher than it was before the pandemic, uh, which means the rest of the states it's not. And we've still got, I think, five or six states that are at 95 percent. Yeah. So they've still got a substantial, you know, uh, you know kind of employment gap, um, which, you know, the national numbers sort of cover that up. Nationally, you say, oh, everyone's working. Well, there's still a lot of states where that's not the case. And, you know, it's the other aspect of this, of course, is the the monetary policy. I mean, you know, if you if you. It's, you know, if you shut a whole bunch of things down, but you keep every, you, you keep consumer spending afloat essentially by creating money, um, now you've got more money chasing fewer goods. Right where we are now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is not, 
<laughs> we shouldn't be we shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing inflation run where it is, uh, considering what Fed policy has been. I thought it was all because of Vladimir Putin. I'm joking. <laughs> no, this this these seeds were sown for this a while back. I mean, with our federal policy and our our fiscal policy and sending out all these checks. So I, I want to get though you've been following this and a lot of other things. What are your policy recommendations? I mean, one of the things I've seen here is the benefits of federalism, which is we get each 50 state more or less making their own decisions about how to handle this. I think your study proves that some policies work, some didn't. But what else, what, what, are, your, what are the takeaways here we can, uh, we can draw from? Well, I definitely agree about federalism. I think that you know, one, of the, you know, one of the saving graces for the whole world is that there were states in the United States that didn't go along with this stuff because there weren't that many countries that didn't. I mean, it's basically Sweden, and I mean, that's about it in terms of major industrialized countries that didn't adopt all this stuff. So having, you know, having states like Florida and South Dakota and Texas you could point to as examples economically, I think is very, very important. So there's a huge benefit to federalism. But I think the, uh, you know, I think the, 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 the big takeaway, which I think is something we used to know, um, is that public health policies should not be coercive. Uh, public health policies should be about providing the best information you can to the public so that people can make their own decisions. And I think that if you do that, uh, people will generally protect themselves. I think the, uh, you know, one of the craziest assumptions early on was this idea that, you know, if government didn't step in with a lockdown, then the curve would just go up forever. But that's not what happens. Uh, human behavior limits epidemics automatically because when you hear there's something bad going around, you try not to get it. Yeah. And so, you know, I really think that we need to go back to the idea of public health being about information and communication, not about coercion and force and shutdowns and lockdowns. And uh, that's got to be the number one lesson learned uh, is that, that, that coercion is not effective and is extraordinarily destructive when it comes to these health measures. And, you know, if our public health authorities can't learn that, and uh, I'm not sure... Yeah, I, I'm not sure they're not going to make things worse just in general because they're going to put out information. People will say, oh, those are the same crazy lockdown people and whatever. And, and they'll just be discounted and ignored in large part. So I, I think the, uh, the, the idea, I think we've got to substantially reform these institutions and downscale them and make clear that they've got a information processing and, and, and that's about it. Uh, I, I don't think the idea of the CDC having rulemaking authority, I find completely insane. Well, maybe the way, other way to think about this is that you've got to think about this as a piece of overall public health. And it looks like we put everything into the immunology world and everything was about the virus when, in fact, the virus is one bad thing. But there are 99 other things that you've got to address if you care about public health and, and social welfare. And that didn't happen. Yeah. Well, I think that the... It, that's why the role of public health should be to provide information and let people make their own right. choices. Because Not, you know, people have people have all kinds of different things that they value and that are important to them. You know, including education, including you know, generating income. And you know, one of the traps we fell into, I think, uh, Bill, is we let people come out and say, "Health trumps everything else. It doesn't matter if we destroy the economy. It doesn't matter if kids don't learn. Health is the one." But everything is health in a sense, mm -hmm. right? You know, if you uh, if you if if you if you're poor economically, you have much worse health outcomes. We have right. a million studies that show that. Uh, educational attainment is very directly related to health outcomes. There's about a five-year difference in life expectancy between high school graduates and high school dropouts. And so, in the long term, all of this is health. 
in the long term, everything related to quality of life, you know, affects life expectancy, affects health as well. And so I think that we we need to be we need to not be blinded about this is the one thing that's right in front of us. And you know, I think that um, people when when you decentralize decision making, people are very very good at assessing these kinds of trade-offs for themselves because you do it all the time. That's kind of what life is. Uh, but when government becomes monomaniacally obsessed with one thing, uh, you get these disastrous outcomes kind of on everything else. And then you go back and you look and say, they didn't even do the one thing very well. It didn't even seem to, to work very effectively for, for their, their thing that they obsessed about. And so, you know, I think we need to have a lot more humility about what's possible. I mean, the idea that you were going to stop a highly infectious respiratory virus from working through the population, I think, was always folly. And um, frankly, I think we should have invested a lot more in treatment than we did. Uh, we had very effective treatments uh, through the entire Delta wave. We had extremely effective treatments with monoclonal antibodies that worked very, very well for Delta. Uh, but in the vast majority of states, people didn't have access to them, didn't know about them. Most of the public health officials weren't talking about them. They weren't making them available. Um, so that was a real failure. And you know, you become so obsessed with the idea of, you know, we're going to prevent everyone from being exposed, which is impossible. That I think we, you know, I think there was one of my one of the most insane factoids of this entire pandemic is that we spent more on bailing out the New York City subway than we did on treatments total. Well, what does that say about relative priorities? Well, it means we need leaders, not uh, not politicized wonks. That's terrible. I mean, Isn't is that, that our, yeah, and, that's, and the other, that's but unbelievable. Then the other aspect of it is, okay, so, but we also had the wrong system for yeah. developing and distributing <clears throat> treatments because we decided we were going to do it all through the through the government. They were going to have a, a purchasing monopoly and they were going to do the weekly allocations and decide how much each state gets. And, um, you know, at one point we had four different versions of monoclonal antibodies from four different companies that were all working pretty well. And you kind of think, if we didn't have the government as the monopoly purchaser, there would have been ads everywhere. <laughs> you know, everybody, they would have been competing like mad. There wouldn't have been shortages. There would have been, you know. Now, now that you've written up the analysis of what worked and what didn't work and evaluated the states, are you also going to follow up with a, I, I think you should, about on a paper, on, on policy prescriptions going forward, just the kind of thing you're, you're talking about? I mean, I think, I think a handbook for these, for people, at least for citizens, to use to hold their, their government accountable would be extremely useful. Yeah, it's a good idea. There are a few, there are a few kind of follow-up analyses that we need to do. You know, one is uh, a lot of people have been asking us, why did the, why did the southwestern states do so poorly? Why the border areas do so poorly? And so I think we need to kind of figure out an answer to that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people point out, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the people who think that lockdowns are great like to, you know, sort of crow about how bad Arizona's um, mortality numbers are because they are very bad. But then you point out New Mexico is equally horrible right next door while they did every lockdown and shutdown and school closure and so forth. So I think there's some regional factor there that we need to sort out that that's kind of on our list to figure out, and uh, you know, there there are a number of other things. But I think t we we do, you know, to the extent that we can understand what happened, um, we've got to prevent these mistakes from being made again. So I think you know, some sort of a uh, re policy recommendations, takeaways thing would be helpful. Although you know, I I think that um, 
it might be better if that comes from people with a little more health credentials as opposed to economic credentials. So I don't know. We're 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 working with um, we're working with some other. I, the answer is yes. Okay, think, let's do it. I, we'll, we'll figure out we'll figure out the best way to get something. Like I, that. I know. I'll, I'll I'll try to help make you make that happen. So Phil Kirpin, thank you. Um, anything you'd like to add to this? Uh, I guess excellent analysis and 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 diagnosis of where we go from here. Uh, I just think that um, whatever else we whatever else we do, we've got to give kids normal life. I think that's the crucial, most important thing right now. Two years is way too long uh, for me and you. It's a you know it's a blip in mm -hmm. long life for kids. It's their whole world. It's everything they've known, and it's it's too much. It's too long. And you know it, even if we have another horrible wave, or if we have another brand new horrible virus, we've got to do right by the kids first and foremost. That's my biggest takeaway. Great. Thanks. This has been the Bill Walton Show. I've been here with Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. And Phil, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me AmericanCommitment.org. You can find me CommittedUnleashedProsperity.com, which is where you can sign up for the daily newsletter that I do with Steve Moore and John Fund. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm a little bit of an addict on there. That's my last name, so, Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N. So, so you haven't been banned on Twitter. Not banned yet, uh, <laughs> I, I, and and if Musk's transaction closes, maybe conservatives will be that'd be clear. a happy thing for everybody. Yeah, we'll see. He supposedly has the funding secured, but he yeah, said that right. before, obviously. Well, anyway, thanks for joining, and uh, as always, tune back in here where we dig into what's true and what's right and and what's next. And uh, we're, we're trying to stay ahead of the curve, and hopefully, we provided some information here that'll help us deal with the next pandemic effectively. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk soon. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return... We'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.